We're in this series called Do You Hear What I Hear? And uh, all we're saying is this, is all of us have a noise that kind of flows through our life. Uh, For some of us, the predominant noise in our life has everything to do with our past. And maybe that's you, right? The noise in your life has everything to do with things that have happened in your past, regrets, shame, decisions you wish you could go back and undo. And it creates this noise that kind of follows you around in life. For others of us, it has everything to do with our present, right? You're facing a challenge right now, today. You have to walk through a door right now, today. And so the noise in your life has everything to do with the big challenge ahead of you at this moment. And then I would suggest this, that most of us, the noise has something to do about the future. Like we're anxious about the future. What's going to happen tomorrow? What about my job? What about my career? Will I ever get married? Whatever that might be has to do with the future. Whatever that noise is, all we've said in this series is this, is that at the holidays, it amplifies. It magnifies. And some of you have emailed me this week saying, yes, it's like ringing in my head the noise in my life. And Christmas, at Christmas, here's the deal. I want you to remember this. God wants to cut through the noise in your life. And the Christmas story has five powerful, I would even say potent, I would even say life-changing things that God wants to say to you this Christmas as he cuts through the noise in your life. And so we literally are on week four. We're on the fourth thing that God wants to say. Week number one, if you weren't here, you can go check this out online. But we simply said, God wants to say, I keep my promises. Christmas story is all about God screaming, shouting, saying, I always have and I always will keep my promises. And that week, we looked at something that was interesting to some of you, that God is not simply the God of the no. Some of you have only been acquainted with the God who's always no, thou shalt not. But he's actually a God of the yes, right? And that in Christ, because of Christmas, all of his promises are yes, So he says, I'm going to always keep my promises. Week two, he said this, the Christmas story shouts, there is hope. And, and, and I told you that probably 25 years of preaching, I might have got the most feedback on that, on that sermon. Why? Because some of you are in a season of silence, darkness, quietness, waiting. And the Christmas story says this, that if you're in that season in particular, God is saying, there's hope. I'm still listening. I'm still working. Even if you're not sure what I'm doing, Christmas story tells me God's working. Last week, last week God wants to say this, I want to help you. And we talked about this big word, which really isn't a big word, this incarnation, that Christmas is about God becoming man. Why? Because God wants to help us. That Jesus is actually the perfect explanation of God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Beyond that, the the Christmas story helps me and the incarnation helps me because Jesus is God who experienced life with me, right? And so it helps me because I have a God that I pray to that experienced life like me. But, But the biggest thing we talked about is that Jesus is God right? He's literally God exchanging places with me. That's what the cross is all about. And then he is God leaving an example for us. Here's what I want to talk about a few minutes this morning, okay? And and I know some of you need to hear what we're going to talk about. Christmas tells me this. God is saying, trust me. God is saying, trust me. The first Christmas story shouts it. The first Christmas story somehow echoes it. And some of you in the room, I am confident of this this morning, some of you, I, I, am, I am absolutely 100% sure some of you need to hear this this morning. You see, here's what I know. Let, let's, let's just be honest. You came to church today, preacher standing in front, and it's not unusual, it's not out of the ordinary for you to think a preacher in church might say, trust God, right? You expect to hear that in church. You expect the preacher to say, 
trust God. We sing about it. We talk about it. Can we even say that it's almost American, right? Because if you look at your money, it says in what? In God we trust. It's almost American, right? And so this whole thing of trust, you expect for the preacher in church to say, trust God. In fact, even as American, you're like, man, we got money. I carry it around with me all the time. I would even say this. I want to be bold and I want to say this. It is a piece of cake. It's a piece of cake to say, I trust God. Piece of cake. In fact, let's try it. I'm going to show you how easy it is. I want everybody all together with me on a count of three to say, I trust God. One, two, three. I trust God. See, made my point. I'm going to even go further. I'm going to step even further out on that limb. I think it's a piece of cake to trust God. Easy. Easy peasy to trust God. Piece of cake to trust God. Listen close. It is a piece of cake, in case you didn't hear me, it's a piece of cake to trust God when your life goes exactly how you planned for it to go. But when your life doesn't go how you planned for it to go. It's a different thing when it comes to trusting God. Trusting God becomes a really, really difficult thing when life throws you a curveball. Trusting God becomes really, really hard when your life is a story that you never would have written and you're playing a role that you never would have auditioned for. Nothing quite shakes our trust in God like when our life doesn't go according to plan, namely our plan. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you in the room have experienced that even this week. Things like the relationship that ended with a simple text. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because your whole future has changed because of one doctor's visit. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because now all of your security's up in the air because of one layoff at work. In fact, I would say it this way, and this might help you remember it, that if life was a major league baseball pitcher, I would say watch out for its nasty curveball. Anybody tracking with me? In fact, I know you don't struggle with this. Maybe you can't relate with this, but I would say in my life, life has been a series of one curveball after another. Is there anybody that can relate with that in the room? Anybody? You see, when I was 18, all I wanted to do was play football. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to play football. I wanted to get through high school, and then I wanted to go on and play at some small school because I loved football. I ate, slept, drank football. I was all about football. In my senior year in preseason practice, I woke up one day and could not bend my knee for no particular reason. I didn't hurt it. I didn't get injured. I could not bend my knee. My dad ran me to every doctor you can imagine. Everybody would look at me and say, we don't know what's wrong with you. We can't figure this out. We finally got to the final doctor. He did all these kind of tests as football season was beginning. And he said, I can tell you what's wrong. You have something wrong with you that I, in all my years of being a doctor, have never seen. You have a birth defect. And that birth defect is causing you not to be able to bend your knee. I told you I'm special, right? You know? He said, I've never seen this before. And all of a sudden, three games into my senior year, I finally got back on the field. And my whole world and all of my plans began to change. And so I ended up going to a school, not the school I 
originally wanted to go to. That school that I went to was called Grace College. If you don't know anything about Grace College, they do not have football at Grace College. No big deal because I'm going to make a plan. And my plan was this. I'm going to go to Grace College and I'm going to be a math major because I'm going to be a math teacher and I'm going to coach football. If I can't play football, I'm going to coach football. And so I went to Grace College and I entered into the math department as a math major. I'm going to teach math until in the middle of my college career, life threw me a curveball. It was called Calculus 3. (laughs) And all of a sudden, my plans changed, right? While I was in school, while I was in school, even at that moment, I had met a gal that I began dating, and we had gotten somewhat serious, and I, we began talking about the future, and I thought, man, I can see us running into the sunset together, husband and wife, and all that kind of stuff. I changed my major from math into a different major, and I began telling her that I be, began feeling like God was calling me into the ministry, into being a pastor. She asked me one question. I remember sitting in the car. She asked one question. She said, do pastors make a lot of money? And I got thrown another curve. Because when I said, I cannot tell you they do, she broke up with me on the spot. I graduated from college. And I began working unloading trucks. I eventually married Jennifer. I got a job that I loved. I was working in the Dean of Student Life office at Grace College, I was training and coaching and working with young leaders, men in particular, loved that job. While working that job, my wife and I found out we were expecting our first child. But we were not just expecting our first child, we were expecting our first child at almost the very same time our best friends in all of the world were expecting their first child. It was awesome. It was incredible. We were going to celebrate together until life threw us a curve, and our pregnancy ended unexpectedly. It wasn't long after that, maybe two years after that, when eventually we had our first child, and I'm working this job that I absolutely love, that I came home to my young wife and our young baby after a meeting with my boss where he called me in and he said, hey, Dan, we have to have budget cuts. I said, that's too bad. What are you going to cut? He said, you. And life threw me a curve. And I remember going home to my wife and saying, I don't have a job. I remember not long after that saying to her, hey, sweetheart, there's this idea. There's this group of about 15 people and they want to start a church about 20 miles away. She's like, well, how much will that pay? I said, not much at all. I remember we pulled up stakes and we went there and began planting the church in Columbia City and began watching God do some awesome things. I honestly thought I would live out the rest of my days in Columbia City. God was doing such incredible things. I so believed that that we had convinced my parents to move to Columbia City as they got older. During their time in Columbia City, my mom came down with liver disease. She was going to die with liver disease. It was during that time while I was her pastor and one of her primary caretakers, as she was dying and we were trying to figure this out, that God threw me another curve. And somebody from Norton, Ohio called me and said, hey, have you ever thought about coming to Norton, Ohio to do ministry? I'm like, no, never. There's a bunch of Buckeyes there. Why would I do that, right? That's what I thought. I remember struggling for one entire year, one entire year with that process. Eventually, 
eventually coming here. After I came here, my, wife, my, my mom went and got a liver transplant. She's a miracle, by the way. And one year to the day, one year to the day when she got her transplant, my dad was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and died not long after that. Life's a series of curveballs. I remember the very first vision campaign I was to lead through here at the Norton campus. I'm young. I, I want to do a good job. I'm going to lead them into this aggressive, aggressive vision. On the day, in case you didn't hear me, on the day I was supposed to share it with the leadership team here, I'm sitting in my office, and one of the staff members came running down the hall. The building is burning down. And this room you're sitting in caught fire and was completely gutted. Life is a series of curve balls. And some of you know that because right now life is throwing you a curveball. Some of you don't know that right now experientially, you will. And for some of you, it's hard because you're a planner. And here's the deal stay with me your plan is good, and yet life is not going according to your plan. So you're struggling. And this Christmas, here's what God is saying to you. He's saying, trust me, when your life does not go like you planned. Trust me, when your life does not go like you planned. And the Christmas story is all about that. Because when you come to the first Christmas story, when you look at that very first Christmas story as found in God's word, I am convinced I'm convinced that many of us in this room are too familiar with it. I'm convinced that many of us are so familiar with that first Christmas story that we will not allow the people in the first Christmas story to be real, and you have to allow them to be real. You have to allow them to be human. I think some of us in the room, we look at the first Christmas story as though it happened just like it looks on my mantelpiece. Or just like it looks on that picture-perfect card. And we assume that everybody in that first Christmas knew their part. We assume everybody in that first Christmas signed up for the role they played in that first Christmas. Listen close. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let them be real. And nowhere is that more powerfully and poignantly seen than in the life of a guy named Joseph. Here's how the story starts. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to, there's our guy, Joseph. Here's what you need to know about Joseph. Because some of you grew up and you kind of put him in the Christmas pageant and you need to put some flesh and skin and rawness and realness. Joseph was a young adult man and he had a plan. Some of y'all, I'm looking out, y'all are young adults right? And Joseph had a plan, and his plan had everything to do with he was pledged to be married to Mary. His plan was a good plan. He's going to execute his plan. He had thought out his plan. And what's interesting about his plan is the very next word in the verse. Everybody say it out loud with me. But there's nothing quite like when you got a plan and a but butts into your life. Anybody with me? Because some of you know exactly what that's like. We were going to go on vacation, but when, when I retire, we were going to enjoy traveling, but 
we're going to get married and live happily ever after, but I was going to get a career in this field, but you see, there's nothing quite like when a but butts into your plans. And the same thing happened to Joseph, very first Christmas, let him be real, and here's what it says, but before they came together, now some of you are like, this is my first time reading this out of the Bible, what does that mean, before they came together for dinner, for a movie, no, it means what maybe you're thinking it means, and I need to make a big deal about this so you understand the rest of this, before they came together sexually, that's what it means, before they had any sexual intimacy, that's what it means. So before they came together, she, who's she? That's his fiance, Mary, was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Say what? Everybody look here a second. I can tell already you're not tracking with me because you need to let Joseph be real. Like, like Joseph had a plan. He's going to roll with his plan. And Joseph's plans got changed. In a big way. Can you all imagine that conversation? Hey, Joe. We got to talk about something. What do we got to talk about? Joe, we have a little change of plans. Oh, you want different colors at the wedding, Mary? Different location? No, Joe. See, here's what you need to know. Like, I'm pregnant. And it's not what you think. It's not? Why wouldn't it be what I think? Like, God's doing this incredible thing, and he's going to, and I, you got to let Joe be real for a second. Joe finds himself in a situation that wasn't how he planned it. He didn't participate in it. And can we just be honest? It's a plan where the story's kind of hard to swallow. And Joe finds himself in a plan that wasn't his plan. So you know what Joe does? He's a planner. Raise your hand if you're a planner. I want to see who the planners are. Crazy. That's awesome. I am too. He develops a plan. You say, how do you know that? Look at what it says next. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Remember, he just found this news out. Like, my fiance's pregnant. We planned this wedding. He's faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He makes a plan. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. In their culture, being engaged would have been, would have been something that would have been a high-level commitment that would have caused a divorce in, in their culture. And so Joseph begins to make a plan. His plans change, so he's going to begin to plan in light of his plans that change. There's something important I want you to see. It's a different sermon, different time, but it's important to see. Joseph did not, stay with me, allow himself to be a victim of circumstance. He could have. His circumstance could have given him justification. I think I'm going to do the wrong thing. and really, But he didn't allow it to be justification for him to do the wrong thing. He planned to do the right thing, which leads to what happens next in the story. But after he had said that word out loud with me, considered, sounds benign. He's like, it's pretty vanilla in our language. And yet in the language the New Testament was originally written in, that word means this. It means to percolate, ponder, maul over, think about. Joseph's going to think about this thing. And why is that important? Because here's the deal. When life does not go as we planned, when it begins to fishtail on us, you know what we can do? You know what we can do? We can begin to oversteer. We can begin to panic. And instead he pondered. 
Here's what I mean by that. When I was 18, when I was 18, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania and I was with five of my friends and we were playing in a basketball tournament. And the basketball tournament we were playing in was across the mountain. Crescent Mountain was the name of the mountain. So if you're familiar with my part of Pennsylvania, you've heard of Crescent Mountain. Crescent Mountain was known for being dangerous in the wintertime. By the way, basketball happens in the wintertime. So me and my friends are going to go, and the guy driving the car, his name's Kirk. Kirk is the most level-headed, steady guy you'll ever want to meet. Kirk was an incredible guy, great. He's a year or two older than us, and we're going to go to this basketball tournament, and the car is full, and on our way to the basketball tournament, no snow. Awesome. Parents were happy, right? Everybody was great. Went to the basketball tournament. We played all day in this basketball tournament. We came out of the gym, and guess what it had been doing while we are in there? It just got drenched with snow, and there's ice, and the weather's crazy. No big deal, because Kirk is a little bit older than us, level-headed. We're going to be fine. We start driving. We get to Crescent Mountain. In the car, we're seated in this way. In the middle front seat is my best friend. His name is Scott. Scott is one of the, those emotional types. Do you have a friend like that? He makes coffee nervous. Anybody have a friend like that? That was my friend Scott, right? He's still that way to this day, right? It's kind of, just kind of like that, right? He's in the middle front. I'm in the passenger side front. We go driving. Kurt's doing a great job. In his car, we hit a piece of ice, and it begins to fishtail. That was unplanned. The minute that car fishtailed, my friend in the middle, whose name is Scott, guess what he did? He reached over for the steering wheel, and he jerked it. And all of a sudden, that car began to do this across four lanes of traffic, hit the side of the mountain, and did it right back across four lanes of traffic. You see, the point is this. For some of us, when things don't go as planned and our life begins to fishtail, we can jerk the wheel, and all of a sudden, our life is spinning out of control. When I look at Joseph, I see somebody who begins to ponder and percolate and think and consider, and when he does that, look at what happens. This is so important. It was then an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Some of you need to write this down, Psalm 46.10. Here's what God says, be still and know I'm God. And sometimes it's in the stillness, in the quietness, when I actually pull back, when I begin to hear God in a different way. And that angel says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. God wanted Joseph to know this, Mary's not insane. Joseph could have thought that, couldn't he? You come and tell me that you're pregnant and God did that and there was no other guy involved. Like, what? He wants Joseph to know Mary's not immoral. What he wants Joseph to know is, hey, Joseph, she's telling you the truth and I'm doing something bigger than you planned. Joseph, you feel stuck in a story you didn't write. You feel stuck playing a role you didn't audition for when really I'm setting you up for an adventure that's going to lead to the saving of many people. That's what he's saying. I got something bigger going on. Which leads to this. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Everybody look here a second. I'm convinced the story's too familiar to us. Joseph said yes to God's plan. 
And most of us, we've heard that, we've seen it acted out in a Christmas pageant, the nativity, whatever it is. We're like, man, it makes for a great story. And we don't allow Joseph to be real. Because when Joseph, you ready? Joseph, a young adult male, when he says yes to God's plan, it's a hard yes. It is anything but easy. Because Joseph says yes to God's plan, guess what? All of a sudden, he's subject to public ridicule. He is? Yeah. Come riding into town. Yes, my fiance, Mary, who's expecting. Really? How'd that happen? You'll never believe this. You're right. I don't. All of a sudden, Joseph, who had this plan, he's taking care of his pregnant fiance, and his honeymoon involves delivering a baby. Oh, not done. His yes to God's plan says, I'll be the earthly father figure to God in the flesh. Being a dad's tough business. Being that dad? Oh, that's not all. After that baby's born, Joseph, you saying yes to my plan means that you're going to have to escape to Egypt and live as a refugee for a period of time. See, here's what I know. When we get to Joseph's story, he says yes to God's plans. Trusting God is easy when things go as I plan. But this Christmas, for some of us in this room right now, I've been talking to people all morning, God is calling for us to trust him even when our plan changes. Can we just be honest? Because I know y'all don't struggle with this, so I'll just be honest about myself. I'm a planner. Some of y'all are planners, and I like it. I like it. In fact, I love it when everybody around me cooperates with my plan. Can I get somebody to say amen on that? I love it. In fact, I get overjoyed when God says yes to my plan. But when God's plan is different than my plan, I know you don't struggle with this, so I'll just confess, nobody in here does, I get kind of ouchy. You know why? Because I like things the way I plan them. And God says this Christmas, I need you to trust me. In fact, trusting me really, really begins to take root in your life when you trust me when things don't go as you plan. How in the world do I trust God? Some things I think this first Christmas story teaches us that I think are worthwhile writing down is this. Trusting God means that when life throws me a curve, that's not the time to panic, but it's the time to ponder and pray. Maybe that's the very time that if I stop, I'm still, I'm quiet. Maybe God wants to take me somewhere I haven't been before. Maybe he wants to say something he hasn't said before. Maybe he wants me to lean into something I've never leaned into before, but that is not the time to panic. In fact, I love what Philippians chapter four says. It said, don't be anxious. Let's, let's use the word panic. Don't panic. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Like, don't panic, ponder, pray. Now look at this. And the peace of God. You don't need to raise your hand, but I bet you in this room there's some people who need peace. I bet some of y'all are feeling some turmoil. He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, can't get my head around it, will guard your hearts. He says that God's peace will stand guard over your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus. 
Simply what he's saying is maybe I'm working a bigger plan. That trusting him, trusting him is somehow saying that when life throws me a curve, I'm not going to panic, but I'm going to ponder and pray. But it means something else. And you need to write this down. It means I'm going to pre-plan saying yes to God's plan. Write it down. Let it percolate. Even if it agitates you, even if you disagree with me, write it down and think about it. I think trusting God involves pre-planning, saying yes to his plan, even before I know what his plan is. It's me saying, when I make my plans, I'm going to hold them with an open hand. Because if God changes my plan, I'm always going to say yes to his plan, even if it's not what I planned. What I'm going to decide to do up front is say that God's plan is the plan I'm going to follow because I have no idea whose life I might touch by saying yes to God's plan. God's plan was totally different than my plan. I went to Grace College because I wanted to be a math teacher who coached football. When I hit calculus three, it gave me a curveball, changed my plan. I became a counseling major because he knew, I didn't at the time, that someday I want you to be a pastor who meets with hundreds of people and a lot of them are hurting. His plan was different than my plan because that girl who said no to me and broke my heart, she's a fine person, but because she said no to me, I had the privilege to say yes to a gal named Jennifer, and I cannot imagine my life without her. When that guy called me into his office and said, your job here is over, it devastated me. I don't have any income, but it opened a door where we had the chance to go plant a church and see hundreds of lives changed through the gospel that wasn't part of my plan. When my wife and I got back from the hospital and our first pregnancy was terminated, and our friends are celebrating their new baby, I had no idea. I was sad for my wife. Had no idea that God's plan involved a young man whose name would be Joel, who wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that plan. I cannot imagine my life without Joel. When God leaned into my life in Columbia City, and he said, I want you to go to Norton. And I'm like, that's crazy. That makes no sense. I can't understand why in the world I had no idea what these 10 years would do. And I can't imagine my life without having the privilege to serve alongside of you in what God is doing here. When the fellow ran down the hall and said, the building's on fire, and I thought, My plans are out the window. I had no idea that God's plans were way bigger than my plans. And what he's done here, even as a result, post-fire, is beyond anything I could have dreamed up or imagined. And I believe that even, look here a second, because I want to say, I want to be tender, even about those things that I don't understand. Because if you came to me and you said, well, why in the world would God make part of the plan, you leaving your mom while she's really, really sick, and why in the world would he save her life and your dad die a year and a half later, I would say to you, I have no idea. 
I have no idea. But you know what I do know? That when my dad breathed his last breath above his head was this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, decide beforehand to submit to him. And he'll make your path straight. Which leads maybe to one more thing I think about when I think about trusting God when my plans change. And that's this. I'm going to trust that God's plan is good. Now stay with me because I think this one's hard to swallow and I want to make sure I t- take you the whole way to the end because I think this is found in a passage of Scripture that is the most abused verse in all the Bible. In fact, it's not only the most abused verse, but I think because it's so abused, therefore it gets abused in a different way. It gets ignored. Because it gets abused, people say it at the wrong time in the wrong way, it gets totally ignored and I think both are abuses. Because it's in the Bible. And here's what it says. And we know. In fact, I don't want to read it. Will you guys read it out loud with me? Everybody together, just like a big choir. Can we do this? Here we go. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I'm going to trust that God's plan is good. Look here. Let's just get real for a minute. Because some of you are followers of Christ. You're like, well, if God's plan is so good right now, why is it so bad? Some of you are thinking that way. And you should. That's an honest question. And here's what I would say in response. I'll trust that God's plan is good, so if it ain't good, I'm going to trust he ain't done. He's still doing something. And some of you are in that moment right now. I love how Jonathan Edwards puts it. He said, our bad things turn out for good. Our good things never can be lost. And the best things are yet to come. God says, trust me when your plans change. Now, before we slide home here, Joseph isn't the only one in the first Christmas story whose plans changed. You know that, right? In fact, if there's somebody in the Christmas story we have dehumanized more than anyone else, can I just suggest that it's Mary? And we need to let her be real. Mary was a young adult gal, maybe even a teenage gal, in an obscure little village, and she had plans. I don't know, maybe she was thinking about her wedding, life with Joseph, I don't know. But her plans got wrecked, and her story's in Luke. It says, in the sixth month of her relative's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. There's our guy a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Look at this. Don't miss this. Mary, you ready? Mary was greatly troubled at the angel. It's not what it says, and that's interesting to me because when an angel's words trouble you more than an angel's presence, there's something about those words I want to pay attention to. She was, angel shows up. That don't happen every day. I don't know if it does to you, email me. That don't happen every day. Angel shows up and she's troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Why in the world is she troubled at the words, you're highly favored, the Lord is with you. Because those words, you are highly favored, is where we get the word in English. This is important to know that this was written in Greek. It's where we get the word grace. 
what God is saying to her is this, Mary, you are the object of my unmerited, undeserved, unearned grace and favor. You're the object of my kindness. And it shocks her. It shocks her, which shows me Mary wasn't expecting it. Mary wasn't like, yeah, I kind of figured God would send an angel and tell me that, right? She, that's not Mary. She's shocked because it's undeserving and it's unexpected. I want to tell you something about grace. Some of you need to write it down. Some of you have grown up in church and, and grace has, begun, has gotten boring to you. It's just a word and a song. Listen, I'm going to tell you something worth writing down. Grace will never be amazing to you until it's shocking to you. Grace will never be amazing to you until it is shocking to you. She's shocked that God would say, you, Mary, who, me? You are the object of my undeserved, unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You can't be moral enough for it. You can't merit it on your own. You are the object, the special recipient of my grace. Which leads me to another observation when you read Luke's story. He goes to great lengths to let us know something. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. Angel says, don't be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. You'll conceive, give birth to a son, you're to call him Jesus. Mary says, how's this going to be since I'm a, there it is again, virgin. It's like Luke is going out of his way. Don't miss this. This kind of stuff captures me when I'm reading. Luke, Dr. Luke, he's going out of his way to make sure we know Mary is a are you with me? Mary is a virgin. Why? Why in the world is Luke going out of his way to make sure that we see in the text that Mary is a virgin? Because the idea and the understanding is God is saying, trust me. And Luke wants us to know that God is asking Mary to trust him, not only to be the special recipient of his grace, but trust me, I wanna do something in you and through you, you cannot and will not be able to do on your own. And that's why it says this next, you'll conceive and give birth to a son. You'll call him Jesus, he'll be great. Called son of the most high. Lord God, give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over Jacob's descendants. His kingdom will never and how's this going to be? I'm a virgin. Holy Spirit's going to come on you. Power of most high overshadow you. And the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God says to Mary this, you're going to be the special recipient of my undeserved favor and kindness, and you're going to play a special role in my forever story. And the angel says this, he says, for no word from God will ever fail and Mary answered, I'm the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Don't miss this. What is God saying to Mary? He's saying this, trust me. Trust me to do what you cannot on your own. And some of you sitting here this morning need to hear that. You know why? Because that's exactly what God is saying to you this morning. It's exactly what he's saying to you this morning. You see that first Christmas, that Jesus, that baby Jesus, he grew up to be an adult. He was an incredible teacher. He worked some incredible miracles, but that's not why he came. Eventually, that mama watched that son die on a Roman cross. Why? Why? 
Because God, through Jesus, was doing for you what you cannot do on your own. And this Christmas, sad to say, he didn't send an angel to tell you that. He sent a bald preacher in Norton, Ohio. But the message is still the same. Trust me to do what you can't do on your own. That's the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is simply this. Trust me. You are the object of my undeserving, unmerited, unexpected grace. That's why Christmas happened. And this morning, that's his invitation. That's his message. You, you are the object of my unearned, unaccomplished kindness on your behalf. And that's why Jesus died. Jesus died so that we could have what none of us could accomplish on our own. You can't merit it. You can't be moral enough for it. You just accept it as a gift. What's interesting is this. You have more in common with Mary than you knew because you know something? The minute you say yes to Jesus, the minute you say yes to Jesus, stay with me, the minute you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. God inside. Why in the world would God take up residence inside of people who say yes to Jesus so that we can just be really nice people and kind of go through life? You listen to me. The reason he takes up residence inside of you is because he wants to do something in and through you that you cannot accomplish on your own. And he says, I have a special role for you in my forever story. The message of Christmas is this. Trust me. Trust me to do in you, in you what you cannot do on your own. And when your plans change, trust me. I got a bigger plan at work. I'm going to ask you across the room to just join me in prayer. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. You close your eyes if you want to because... Father, my prayer for my friends this morning, this is the story of Christmas, and there are some of my friends sitting here today that they've never said yes to Jesus, and and that might be you. You're sitting here this morning, and you've never said yes to Jesus, and what you need to walk away with, what God is saying to you this morning is I did for you what you can't do for yourself. You're trying to be moral enough. You're trying to earn it. You're trying to merit it. You're hoping you can be good enough. And I'm saying that forgiveness from your sins, relationship with God, and heaven as your hope is a gift I'm extending because Jesus took your place on the cross. And right there in your seat, right now, this moment, you can say yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I believe you love me. Yes, Jesus, I believe you died in my place for all the wrong stuff I've done in my life. And yes, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you as my Savior and my Lord. If you had that conversation with God, I'd love to hear from you somehow, some way. There's a lot of you sitting here this morning and you've said yes to Jesus, but can we just be honest? It's never dawned on you why in the world the minute I say yes to Jesus would the Spirit of God live inside of me? 
And, and if we're just honest, there's some of you sitting here and you would say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. But if you're honest, your, your whole Christian experience has been vanilla. It's been boring. It's been blasé. And could it be that the reason your whole Christian experience has been vanilla, has been boring and blasé is because you have never taken a step to trust God to do in you and through you what you can't do on your own. That somehow he has a special role for you. He wants to do something in you and through you that quite frankly you can't accomplish apart from him doing it in and through you. And he's saying, trust me. I'm just little old me in Norton, Ohio, in Medina, Ohio, and Dallastown, Ohio, and Mary was just little old me in Nazareth. And God's saying, listen, you are the object of my divine favor, and I want to do something in you, and through, but I need you to trust me. I need you to take a step of obedience. I need you to somehow take that risk. I need you to somehow step out. I didn't save you, and I don't reside in you just so you can be kind and nice, live out your days, retire, and die. I got a purpose and a plan. And for some of you, that plan God has has totally wrecked your plans, changed your plans, and he's saying, trust me. Trust me. I got a bigger plan going on. Trust me. Don't panic. Don't panic. But predetermined to say yes to my plan. Well, it's not good right now. I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm still working my plan. Father, I'm grateful that Christmas screams, trust me. Trust me, trust me. God, I confess it's a piece of cake when everything goes the way I plan it. God, I pray that you'd help me and my friends to trust you when it goes how we don't plan and that we would trust you to do in us and through us what we can't do on our own. We love you. Thank you that you're trustworthy. I pray this in Jesus' name.